So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And today I'm joined by John Moscow, uh, who is a sometimes co-host of the show. And we are very happy to welcome back Professor Gerald Horn, who's the Morris Professor of History at the University of Houston. So welcome to the show, John, and welcome to the show, Professor Horn. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Very excited to talk to you today. So um, I'm a high school history teacher. I teach 10th and 12th grade history. And I'm interested in what you wish all high school kids in America knew about the American Revolution. Let's start there. Well, first of all, what I wish may be difficult, I'm speaking to you from Texas. And as you know, there is a movement sweeping the United States that's seeking to circumscribe the teaching of what are thought to be controversial issues that do not necessarily reflect well upon the resultant republic that emerged at the end of the 18th century, not least teaching about enslavement of Africans, that is to say my ancestors, not least teaching about dispossession of the indigenous. But certainly with regard to 1776, I think it would be useful if folks realized that uh, you need to have a sort of materialist view of 1776, uh, that is to say, uh, a view that takes as a predicate that material interests are what's driving events as opposed to alleged and purported uh, liberating ideas, paradoxically in the heads of slave owners, who of course after 1776 go on to oust Britain from leadership of the African slave trade, as then Britain after it loses its market in North America moves towards uh, abolition and then puts pressure on the United States to act similar. So in that context, I think it would be useful if folks were more aware of the Royal Proclamation of 1762-1763, wherein London expressing frustration at exp expending blood and treasure, moving of Native Americans so that real estate speculators like George Washington could profit sought to restrain that movement West, which was not very pleasing to the real estate speculators. And then in 1772, you have Somerset's case wherein London uh, fundamentally suggests that slavery will no longer obtained in England and the decision rapidly spreads throughout the British Isles. And there is a fear that that decision will leapfrog the Atlantic now, there are those who try to suggest that I say that Somerset's case uh, triggered uh, the revolt, which is, if you look at my book, The Counter-Revolution of 1776, uh, you will be disabused of that notion. And likewise, if you look at the predicate books, one on the 17th century and one on the 16th century, you will certainly be disabused of that idea. But I think that it's fair to say that when profound revolts take place. When men of means decide to break the law, which is what the revolt against British rule was, they were breaking British law and were thumbing their nose at the idea of patriotism towards the crown, which supposedly had brought them across the Atlantic in the first place, that usually it's motivated by large ideas like land and labor. 
And uh, it reminds me, quite frankly, of the revolt against U.S. rule in 1861 <laughs> by the so-called Confederate States of America, where after they lost, and even today, they're trying to convince people that actually it was about states' rights. It was about some idea, not about something material like you know, maintaining slavery, for example. And so you can apply the, the same sort of reasoning to 1776. As you've written, this was a revolt led by slave owners and by uh, merchants, many of whom were involved in trade that relied on the product of um, enslaved people. And at the same time, there was also, I mean, Jefferson, of course, wrote, you know, famously, all men are created equal. You had people like uh, Kosciuszko from Poland, who, you know, came across to join with the, the rebels um, and tried to convince Washington to stop being a slaveholder. Uh, you had people like Tom Paine, who was an abolitionist. So what was the interplay between these ideas and between the material realities that you're, that you're talking about? First of all, with regard to, uh, I think that one should look a bit more carefully at this alleged man of liberty and how he reacted to a true revolution, the Haitian Revolution, 1791 to 1804, which led directly to the abolition of slavery and in some ways was a slap on the face of 1776. Uh, Tom Paine, despite his affection for the French Revolution from which they have uh, the Haitian Revolution springs, was not necessarily, not necessarily fond of the Haitian Revolution. Second of all, uh, as you probably know, there were those, including Europeans, by the way, who did not necessarily revolt against the crown. I mean, for example, in 1776, you had uh, London as a result of the uh, Seven Years' War, 1756 to 1763, basically in control of Florida. Uh, many of these historians, bless their hearts, don't ask, why didn't Florida revolt against British rule? Part of the reason was that, that there was a substantial black population in Florida. Spanish colonialism pursued a different path than London's colonialism. This is laid out in some detail in my 16th century book. But to make a long story short, Spain had a religious qualification for settlement. So therefore, in Spanish Cuba, and to a degree in Spanish Florida as well, you could have African conquistadors. London, the scrappy underdog, which was pressed against the wall, they were almost, you know, the monarchy was almost toppled in London in 1588, opted for a different path of development, which moved away from saying Protestantism would be a qualification for settlement to basically pan-Europeanism, which in the first instance served to co-opt those they had been warring with. It's very striking that folks like Patrick Henry, the slave owner, former governor of Virginia, give me liberty or give me death. He happened to be of Scottish background. And of course, he was one of the many Scots who were co-opted after Scotland had been warring against London for centuries. Parenthetically, it's striking to note that now that the colonial banquet has ended, you have these secessionist sentiments arising in Scotland. And likewise, it's striking to note that after moving away uh, from Protestantism as a qualifier, moving towards uh, co-opting others, Irish, for example, and of course, we all know 
about the rampaging that the Protestants did in Ireland, uh, which of course continues, albeit on a lesser scale, in 2021. And then moving from there to pan-Europeanism, British, all these people have been warring on the shores of Europe, British versus German, German versus Pole, Pole versus Russian, uh, Croats versus Serbs, Northern Italian versus Sutton, in a maneuver that would make Madison Avenue blush when they cross the Atlantic, they're rebranded as, quote, white, unquote. Even the Jewish minority, uh, which had been expelled from England in 1290, 1291, uh, being up against the wall impressed, they did not emulate the Spanish who had expelled the Jewish minority in 1492. Uh, London, in order to broaden the base of settler colonialism, uh, basically embraced this minority. They even embraced Catholics even though a lot of the primitive accumulation uh, for England in the 1500s came from expropriation of Catholic property. But yet, if you look at the history of Maryland, you had uh, Catholics dispatched to what they call Maryland after the Catholic Mary, Queen of Scots, Bloody Mary, who used to, or at least was accused of burning Protestants at the stake. So these are all the realities, but the uh, philosophically idealistic and the credulous have been trying to convince the rest of us, and not albeit, uh, not unsuccessfully, I'm afraid to say, that actually was enlightenment that uh, led to this embrace of Catholics and the Jewish minority and, and all of that. But actually, they were just brought in the base of settler colonialism so they could better confront the indigenous and the Africans. Uh, look no further than what happened in the Dominican Republic in the 1930s when the dictator Trujillo uh, opened his doors to the fleeing Jewish minority uh, from Europe. At the same time, he was massacring Haitians along the borders. I guess that was enlightenment too. Or you have a control group. Canada did not revolt against British rule. And of course, isn't it ironic that in terms of one of the first obligations of the state, to attend to the health and welfare of the citizens. It's not the revolutionary republic that has the healthcare system that attends to those without means. It's the land, Canada, that did not revolt against British rule. Now, then when you raise that, of course, <laughs> the people from the United States, they move to the left and start talking about all the imperfections of Canada. And like, you know, why are you in the tank for Canada? Well, why are you in the tank for a slave owner's republic? You mentioned that the transition from religion to race happens at the same time as the transition from feudalism to capitalism. Can you talk a little bit about that, the relationship there? Is, is it because we're shifting to capitalism that there's a shift away from religious differences towards, towards race? I think what's happening, once again, is that, uh, I, I call it improvisation. That is to say that London, its back is against the wall and it wants to intervene for various reasons in the colonial banquet. An opening is created in 1571 with Lepanto when the those who had been at the top speak suffer a defeat at the hand of the Catholics led by Spain. And uh, there's more room at the top created. And as noted, London was already moving towards primitive accumulation of capital through expropriating the uh, Catholics. And then when London gets involved in the colonial banquet and begins to focus like a laser beam on enslavement of Africans, that creates even more wealth. 
in my 17th century book, I talk about this transition in terms of the rise of Oliver Cromwell uh, after the beheading of the monarch in the middle of the 1600s, whereby uh, then uh, Oliver Cromwell and his comrades were able to oust the Spanish from Jamaica. And at the same time, you have unleashed what is called the sugar boom. Uh, London had moved into Barbados uh, just a, a few years earlier. And with the onset of the sugar boom, uh, you have a cascade of wealth flowing into the coffers of London. And this helps to propel the transition from feudalism to capitalism. That is to say, the exploitation of Jamaica and Barbados in the first instance, which allows London then to build sturdier ships, uh, which are used for conquest and for the Royal Navy to build sturdier ships, which also helps to uh, induce the expansion of a working class population, uh, which then can build ships that can be used to transport settlers across the Atlantic, used to build sturdier ships in order to uh, transport more Africans in vessels across the Atlantic. And then the piece de resistance, so to speak, uh, comes in 1688 with the so-called Glorious Revolution, where the growing merchant class, which uh, to that point uh, had played second fiddle to the monarch in terms of the lushness of the African slave trade, you could invest $1 and get $1,700 back. I mean, there are those who would sell their firstborn for a 1,700% profit, let alone some African they didn't know. Mm -hmm. And so with the so-called glorious revolution, you saw even more wealth uh, being propelled into the pockets of merchants uh, who were then able to expand industry. Now, of course, this facilitates this bumpy transition from uh, feudalism to capitalism, and it helps to also facilitate the other essential aspect of the creation of uh, capitalism, which is what I call these militarized and monetized identity politics of whiteness. It's ironic, it seems to me, that those who today are defined as white are the first identity politics. It's like the thief yelling, stop thief. I mean, they don't necessarily look at their own identity which they tried to hide, normalize. So, as I said in one of my books, it's like the little kid uh, who uh, holds his hands over his eyes and says, now you can't see me. I mean, just because they don't see it, they don't think the rest of us can see it. I mean, it's, it's lunacy of the first order. So I wanted to ask that, you know, given that the United States has been fundamentally a white supremacist society, you know, from, from the beginning, what does this mean for us now? What does it mean in terms of what should radicals be looking to do now in terms of how to uh, try to create an anti-racist society? Well, uh, I wrote a short piece called Against Left-Wing White Nationalism, where I laid out the fact that listeners should be aware of that Black intellectuals are, are moving away from the creation myth that too many leftists have co-signed. Uh, I point you to the remarkable series, uh, Exterminate All the Brutes, by the Black filmmaker, Raoul Peck, a sweeping 
analysis, concastigation of settler colonialism, a term curiously and conspicuously missing from the vocabularies of most of those who call themselves radical. I guess they feel that, you know, once again, you know, this invasion of North America and dispossession of the Native Americans, it's been sort of normalized even by radicals. So you don't even use the term settler colonialism. You know, I guess you can use it for Israel, maybe, but you can't use it for North America. And I also pointed to the series by Nicole Hannah-Jones in the New York Times, where she had the audacity to suggest in her 1619 project that uh, a slave owner's revolt in 1776 was had something to do with slavery, believe it or not. And I, of course, I point to the recent book by this scholar, black scholar, Tyler Stovall, White Freedom, A Racial History of an Idea, uh, where he suggests that from this inception, at least I think he begins his story in the 18th century, that this concept of freedom was racialized. It wasn't considered for the rest of us, which then helps to expose these fallacies that even some black people have adopted, that uh, somehow we have to make the country live up to its founding ideals. Well, I don't know how to break this to you, but you know, slave owners did not necessarily feel that their property, which oftentimes in their inventories and wills and estates was grouped with hogs and cows, were basically uh, individuals and humans on, on their level. So I guess what I'm saying is that for radicals uh, trying to build an ace and to steer away from the creation myths, and it might be helpful to develop a materialist understanding of history, more so than this credulous understanding of history, this philosophically idealistic version of history. And more particularly, it might be useful to try to understand how and why it is that after years of lies and demagogy, a faux billionaire got 74 to 75 million votes, mostly from Euro-Americans in November 2020, well, how and why it is that in 1991, a, an avowed Klansman and Nazi, David Duke, got about 55% of the Euro-American vote running for governor of Louisiana, or how and why it is that in New York City, the two citadels of conservatism is, or not only the Upper East Side of Manhattan, where the posh and the elite tend to reside, but also working class and middle class Staten Island. Stop making excuses. Look the ugly reality in the face. Because the right is on the march. You heard General Flynn the other day talking, although he walked the comments back, talking about maybe what's needed in this country is a military coup. You saw what happened on January 6th, where the outlines of such were sketched. And even though a person like myself might be first on the list of victims, if that eventuality were to occur, believe me, as the 45th president likes to say, I won't be the only person nor will it only be black people who get it in the neck. So the answer, the answer in part is to, is to teach a materialist history of, of the United States, in part. In part, and I also, in, in that uh, piece that I wrote, I talked about the labor law, uh, the PRO law, because you know, we, obviously we need more class-based organizations. But once again, I mean, I, I'm not gonna be idealistic like uh, some of our friends on the left, and, and think that it's just a cakewalk to get the PRO law passed and to reform US labor law to make it easier to organize unions, which is a solvent helping to uh, attack this class collaboration that has been inherent in the construction of whiteness and inherent in the construction of settler colonialism. 
for black people, what I have suggested is rebuilding our global alliances, uh, which have been which have fallen into disrepair since the Compromise of 1954, uh, which led to an agonizing retreat from some of the more egregious aspects of white supremacy and Jim Crow. But the uh, concession was the throwing overboard of the socialist-oriented faction led by folks like Paul Robeson and his comrades. I think that in 2021, we need to question whether or not that was a bargain. And in the meantime, start to build bridges to the African Union in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, to launch a human rights investigation of the United States in the wake of the killing of George Floyd before robust lobbying by Secretary of State Michael Pompeo a stymied that, at least for the time being. And of course, we need to build bridges to the Caribbean community, Jamaica, Barbados, Antigua, et cetera, because when you had a major success in this country, the US Civil War, I mean, a lot of it was ignited by the Haitian Revolution, which led to a domino effect leading to a general crisis of the entire slave system that could only be resolved with this collapse in 1865. And likewise, the retreat of Jim Crow, as my earlier book showed, was driven by this fear that the socialist camp would be able to win hearts and minds in the Caribbean and resource-rich Africa because Black people in this country were treated so atrociously. Or likewise, when the, as stated in my book, Facing the Rising Sun, when the Black nationalists began to ally with Japan, uh, I point out in that book uh, on this day um, where you have a lot of discussion about the Tulsa massacre, some reason called race massacre, why not, why not call it what it was, a racist massacre in 1921, that that was a part and parcel of a number of massacres. For example, in East St. Louis, Illinois in 1917. But woe and behold, in November, 1942 in East St. Louis, Illinois, you had black folks in military uniform armed in drills anticipating a Japanese invasion of the United States that they were going to join on behalf of Tokyo. And that kind of action then convinced the rulers of this country that the better part of wisdom, not to mention national security, was to retreat from the more egregious aspects of Jim Crow. So uh, a good deal of the change that has to come in this country will have to come from those who have the most to lose, and that's the black community. What are some of the bases that you think that a significant number of whites will join a cross race, cross ethnic, cross class uh, movement led by black people, indigenous people, brown people, and other people of color? Well, I didn't necessarily say that the movement would be led by black people. I think black people need to construct a movement no matter who else joins. I mean, for their own benefit and for their own rescue. Right. I mean, if, if, you look, if you look at the position of slavery, it's not clear to me that there were a majority of Euro-Americans who joined. So I'm not even sure if that's a prerequisite. Well, I, I welcome them to the struggle, but you know, my first impulse is not to try to recruit them and let somebody else take on that Herculean job. Right. I wasn't, I wasn't suggesting a majority. Um, and I certainly agree that it's in most white people's interest to, you know, to rebel. And my feeling was simply that, you know, every time there have been 
cross-racial movements that haven't been led by people of color, you know, people of color have gotten sold out. So I guess I'm just asking if you have thoughts about what some of the strategies that leftists can be using, you know, to build the most effective movement possible. Well, obviously it comes back to material interests. I mean, for example, if you're building a tenant union, it makes interest, it makes sense for uh, black tenants and non-black tenants to join hands to make sure that their rent doesn't go through the roof. Material interest. If you're talking about unions, it makes sense for black workers and non-black workers to join hands in order that wages and working conditions can improve. I mean, it, it's clear that if you talking about student unions, it makes sense for black students and non-black students to join hands to make sure that tuition doesn't go up or that student debt is canceled. I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it, it doesn't take a genius or an oracle to figure out what needs to be done. The question is, uh, we're in such a deep hole right now <laughs> with these, these right-wingers on the march. I mean, rewriting history of January 6th, Michael Flynn talking about a coup. I mean, these people were, they're on the march. And so, uh, as a matter of fact, I, I have to tell you, uh, I've even th thought about leaving this country because I, I foresee dark days ahead. But uh, still, for those who are not able to leave, I think the path ahead is evident. In your writing, you talk about the 1619 Project from the New York Times. And, and by the way, Dr. Horn, it, Am I correct in understanding that a lot of the a lot of the evidence that was gathered for that for those pieces was taken from from your work? <laughs> well, I wouldn't say that, but okay. some, uh, some some of the evidence, if not a lot. Yeah, some. I mean, okay. plus, I mean, plus Nicole Hannah Jones is in enough trouble, right? Without associating with me. Okay, so okay, but so the New York Times put out what I, what I thought was overall pretty good. Uh, 1619 project. And then, as you say, the brilliant Raul Peck has this four-part miniseries on, on HBO Max that everybody, I think, should, should watch. But, you know, the New York Times and, and, and HBO, I don't even know who, who owns HBO at this moment in time, um, but those are not radical institutions or radical outlets. So, why is it that I think what you're arguing is that some of the left in America is even behind the very liberal New York Times and NHBO and corporations like HBO that I don't understand. I'm, I'm not sure how we got to this point. So what do you think is going on? What I think is going on are a number of factors. Uh, one, I think that with regard to HBO Max, with the pandemic shutting down theaters, and helping to accelerate streaming. And streaming can help to create niche markets. And I think that that helps to explain, say, the opening scene of Watchmen, which has a graphic recreation of the mm -hmm. Tulsa massacre of 1921. And the Black community in the United States, which is quite open to these ideas. I mean, you know, it, it's even non-radical Black Americans, I found, are quite open to these ideas because of their live reality. And that's a, a market of 44, 45 million people from the Atlantic to the Pacific. 
that also oftentimes wills influence on other communities, as music tends to suggest. And so I think that uh, those who are interested in profit will see that there might be profit to be made. And, uh, you know, it's just like I'm, I'm doing this book <laughs> on, um, on Texas, Mexico now. And so I was just reading before you called these dispatches from Mexico, the U.S. envoys there in 1866. You remember the French had taken over Mexico. And uh, the U.S. envoy is saying, well, you have uh, arms dealers in New York who are sending arms to the French <laughs> you know, to fight the United States mm-hmm. because the United States is concerned because the French has moved thousands of troops there. The Confederates are fleeing in mass to, to Mexico. <laughs> and so they think that uh, they're going to launch uh, an invasion of the weakened United States, just weakened and decimated by the U.S. Civil War. So, you know, these people will do anything for profit. That shouldn't come as a surprise. And then secondly, with regard to the New York Times, I think there is a lot of discord amongst um, black workers and middle strata elements. And, you know, the New York Times editor, Dean McKay, is black. Nicole Hannah-Jones is black. They're looking for niche markets, too. That's why they, I guess, they haven't fired Brett Stevens, the the historically, or why they also employed Charles Blow, uh, because, you know, it's niche marketing. So, and then I think that the, these elite institutions, they have more confidence. <laughs> I don't think the, the left has confidence in itself, and it shouldn't have confidence in itself. Swallow all these creation myths, they should have a lack of confidence. They only use the term settler colonialism, they should have a lack of confidence. And so I think if you mix all these factors together, you'll be able to understand why it is that uh, these corporations, the corporate media, to use that phrase, are oftentimes ahead ideologically of folks on the left. You know, obviously, you know, Nicole Hannah-Jones talks about 1619 rather than 1776 as a good place to start. And I know you've uh, suggested, you know, as you were talking about today, that you could even go back to the you know, 13th century in terms of England's policy in terms of expelling Jews and so forth. Um, why do you think that so much of the history that's taught in schools sort of skips from 1492 to the early 17th century and sort of ignores the entire 16th century, more or less? Perhaps <laughs> one that's a good question. <laughs> and I was wondering whether some of it has to do with the fact that so much of what was happening then on the North American continent, as far as Europeans was concerned, was, was Spanish and was Catholic. And that even though, as you pointed out, England was ready to make the switch from religion to, um, to race, obviously so much, even with Maryland, but so much of the colonial enterprise was a Protestant enterprise. And even, you know, as late as, you know, the 1840s, you get, you know, one of the big questions was, you know, was the focus going to be on uh, issues of slavery or on requiring Catholic immigrants to sort of be citizens, to be here for 20 years before they could become citizens, because presumably that would help them overcome being papists um, and their indoctrination. So what's your sense of, of why the history, you know, manages to skip a century so quickly? Well, obviously, it's it's more than Eurocentrism. It's Anglocentrism, basically. And 
events don't matter until the Londoners arrive. And then that allows these historians to ignore how the ground was prepared by the Spanish conquistadors, for example, in Florida, uh, where they were liquidating the indigenous population in mass, not to mention uh, sweeping through what is now Georgia, uh, Alabama, Mississippi, et cetera, even Texas to a degree, uh, liquidating uh, indigenous people in their wake. As I suggested in my 16th century book, you really should start, if you're gonna talk about settler colonialism, the European invasion, of North America and the precursor of the United States, you should start in New Mexico and Florida. But you know, th these historians bless their hearts. I mean, what can you say? I mean, most of them are siloed, for example. I mean, they'll pick out a period, uh, 17, 1850 to 1865, or 1770 to 1783. And that's all that they do. Don't ask them what happened before, don't ask them what happened after. Actually, you can't even ask them what happened during that period. And I've analogized that to the person who comes into the movie halfway through and thinks that they grasp the plot. The other analogy that I've used is to the jury in the first Rodney King trial, recall that he was the black motorist beaten by <clears throat> officers of the law some 30 odd years ago in LA County. And when they're put on trial, the wily defense lawyers instead of showing the videotape, because the beating was videotaped, instead of showing it in, in one loop, they fragmented. <laughs> and then the credulous jury is led to believe, well, this fragment doesn't mean a crime, and this fragment doesn't mean, and that's what these historians do. They look at a fragment as opposed to a continuous loop, and then what do you know? They're able to exonerate settler colonialism and get trapped in these ideas about how we need to uh, adhere to the founding ideals of this country. And when these atrocities take place, like in Tulsa, well, that's not who we are. Or the killing of children in Connecticut, that's not who we are. I mean, it, it's, it, it's, it's obvious that uh, there is a social and political function that is served by this misreading of history. Uh, that is to say that particularly for black people, you know, there's this <laughs> rampant idea for some reason that these black people are very volatile. So you can't tell them the whole truth because they might get upset and tear the place up. <laughs> so you have, to, you have to feed them these myths. But the problem there is that when they find out the truth, they get even more upset. <laughs> That's what people need to come to grips with.